Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books in East Asian Studies podcast, part of the New Books Network. I'm Steve Wills, a professor of history at Nebraska Wesleyan University in Lincoln, Nebraska. My guest today is Tobias Harris, a senior vice president covering Japan and East Asia for the advisory firm Teneo. Mr. Harris has extensive experience as a researcher and commentator on the state of contemporary Japanese politics, including a six-year tenure as a research fellow at the Sasakawa Peace Foundation USA, where he specialized in analyzing Japan's political economy and public opinion polls. His blog, ObservingJapan.com, is an excellent source of deep insight into the halls of powers in Japan. I particularly recommend his fine-grained analyses of the prime minister's use of time, illustrated in beautiful pie charts. The blog also features a public opinion aggregator tool Mr. Harris developed for tracking public support of the Abe administration, and now the Suga administration that has succeeded it. Today we'll be discussing Mr. Harris's new book, The Iconoclast, Shinzo Abe and the New Japan, a deeply researched and revealing biography of Abe Shinzo, the longest serving Japanese prime minister who announced his resignation less than a month ago. As we'll discuss later in the interview, that sudden development does nothing to undermine Mr. Harris's overall assessment of Abe's political career or his legacy, but it does give us a chance to ask one of the leading experts what's to expect from Japan now that it's under new or newish leadership. Tobias, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Steve. Thank you for having me. It's really a pleasure. I wonder if we could just start off by hearing from you how you got interested in Japanese politics in the first place. Sure. I guess it's always nice to go back to the beginning. <laughs> so I've been interested in politics, just, you know, p- politics full stop for as long as I can remember, and certainly uh, not long after I was able to read. And you grew up in a household with lots of just lots of newspapers, and magazines, and was always interested and got interested in Japan at the end of high school, beginning of college, uh, not through politics at all, actually, but through literature, um, first in translation. And then I really wanted to be able to read it in the original. And so at the start of um, college, I, I arrived on campus at Brandeis University and found the Japanese professor and, and begged basically to, um, to, to be able to enroll in what was then an over-enrolled intro class. And uh, just kept studying the language and um, knew I was going to study politics. And so then at that point, it was just a matter of, of putting the two together and uh, did a master's and, and focused on uh, Japan's foreign relations and then went and worked for a Japanese lawmaker. And, and after that, I mean, I was hooked and, and yeah, here we are. What were some of those first Japanese authors, the, the literature that first got you hooked? Well, it was, um, I mean, classics, you know, some Mishima, some Kawabata, um, really, I mean, my, my 18 year old self really loved uh, Murakami Haruki um, um, and then, you know, actually, and part of that also was just reading, um, some nonfiction as well. I mean, then it was, okay, well, I better, you know, understand the history of Japan as well. And so read, uh, at that point, John Dower's, uh, um, embracing defeat was relatively new. Sorry about that. Um, it was really, I mean, I remember being really struck at the time, uh, by just how little Japan had figured into my education at that point. I mean, you know, I'd gone to public schools, K through 12, and, um, you know, decent education, obviously had been interested in, in the world outside. And uh, just Japan really had never been on, on my intellectual radar screen. And so at that point, I just kind of dived in and, and consumed and, and soaked up as much as I could. 
Yeah, that's great to hear about literature being sort of a, a, a gateway to this whole world of um, the, the inner workings of Japanese politics. And, and then your time actually working uh, as an advisor in, in Japan, that must have been quite an experience as well. Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely something that I know people who, you know, lots of people now have, have had similar experiences. And I, and I, for my, for my money, there's no better way to really learn about, I guess you'd call it the sort of a granular feel for how Japanese politics works. Um, the kind of things that aren't necessarily written um, in books where you get a feel for the cycle of Japanese political life. I mean, I did a lot of work in um, my, my boss's local office in uh, Kamakura and just seeing how voters interact with politicians, you know, who's coming to the office looking um, for help with something, what sort of ceremonial and community functions a lawmaker plays. I mean, the kind of things where it's not to say no one has written about it, but it's you don't really appreciate it until you actually, I think it's very hard to appreciate until you actually see it uh, and are there on the ground. And so I, I it's, it's immeasurable what I gained from that experience. It's nice to hear that seeing how the sausage gets made didn't turn you off <laughs> in the end. <laughs> no, I mean, I think it's, um, I mean, it's a democracy and, and you know, that democracies are, um, they're made of people and, and people, <laughs> <laughs> I guess there's a, a, I mean, it sounds like a soiling green thing. No, democracies yeah. <laughs> are, are people in, you know, in all their, all their strengths and all the, the commitment they have to their communities and the people they live with and, and to make their communities livable places. And then also people in their venality. I mean, and, and that's just the reality of it. And um, the, the one thing that I think in some ways I learned to appreciate um and, you know, this is not an empirical observation. This is just a, a sense, but um, a, a sense that in many ways, um, Japanese lawmakers are, are uh, closer to the people who elect them than American lawmakers sometimes are. Um, and, you know, that they're they're closer to their communities, which I don't know, Japanese voters might not always feel that. Um, but, um, I, I mean, just my, just as a sort of a, a naive comparison um, you know, from being an American voter and, and then having seen Japan up close. I mean, I, I just got that sense that you, you, you were just much more approachable, um, which is no bad thing. That's really interesting. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about the origins of this book project in particular. What inspired you to write a biography of Abe Shinzo? My, um, my career as a uh, Japanese politics watcher in many ways tracks Abe's. He became prime minister about a month or three weeks before I arrived in Japan to work for Asao Keichiro, the, the lawmaker I worked for. And at that point, um, right after I arrived, started blogging, just not really intending to write for an audience, just writing down my observations of things I was reading and things I was seeing um, you know, on the ground uh, working in a lawmaker's office. And... So his year, so he, he becomes prime minister of Japan's youngest post-war prime minister with great expectations and high approval ratings in September of, two, of 2006. And then a year later, leaves office, having led the LDP to an historical electoral defeat. Um, his approval ratings fell. He was dogged with scandal and his health failed him. And But that year, I you know, was writing thousands of words on what was happening with his government. And so there was sort of a... a I always sort of felt nostalgic about that time. I mean, it was very, um, just a, just a kind of a wild year in my life. And 
you know, it was a year I learned a lot and spent a lot of time just thinking about Abe and what he stood for and what he believed and how he governed. And then, uh, of course, had you know, written him off like most people had because it seemed like there wouldn't really be a second act. And then, um, so he comes back in late 2012. Um, I leave a PhD program that spring and by the summer, um, started working for Taneo, uh, where I, where I still am, um, really. And then at that point really became an Abe watcher because you had this, uh, surge of interest in, um, Japan and Abe's new government because of Abenomics, this economic program we rolled out. And it was really by, by about 2014, when it looked at that point that Abe was, uh, was going to stay around for a while that I thought, well, okay, maybe there's a story really here to tell that, you know, he had had this, um, phenomenally, uh, personally traumatic, uh, career setback in 2007, somehow finds a way back into power, um, you know, against all odds, really, um, even, you know, people in his inner circle thinking that he shouldn't have run in in 2012 for the LDP leadership, um, and then manages to somehow become this global household name um, for for economic policy, which, you know, just knowing Abe was just never his forte. Um, It was just sort of a remarkable turn of events. And, uh, you know, then at that point, thinking that okay, he's gonna, if he's going to be around for a while, maybe there's there's a market um, to write a book just explaining what he's about and uh, what to expect from him. And then over time, it just got hard to actually do the work. And and my intentions then evolved to, uh, well, now he's nearing the end of his term. Maybe it's time to write something that looks at his legacy, um, looks at the whole the the entire arc of his career and his family, and you know tries to really tell his story and think about how he's going to be remembered. You know, what, what are we going to think about when we think about Abe in, in 5, 10, or 15 years, and, and really trying to write that story. So that, re- that was really the genesis uh, of the book project. Yeah, and as we'll talk about at the, toward the end of the interview, your timing turned out to be impeccable. <laughs> Even better than I expected, because I thought I was going to peg it to uh, the Tokyo 2020 Olympics. And of uh-huh. course, um, <laughs> That that didn't end up happening, and then it was delayed. Um, just the, you know, the publishing industry has has had its challenges this year with the pandemic. Sure. And um, the date, it just, I mean, really, they they <laughs> spun the wheel, <laughs> and the date it ended up being slotted for was the day before he announced his resignation. So, it really, could not have timed it better. Who, who would have thunk it? Well, one of the great strengths of your biography, I think, is the the depth of the background that you're able to give, not only with the early stages of Abe's political career, but even going back into his family history. And I think it's very revealing to learn about his, uh, to think of Abe in terms of a sort of uh, political dynasty of sorts. And I, I thought we could start by talking a little bit about Abe's grandfather, Kishi Nobusuke. You make it clear in the early part of the book that his grandfather was a huge influence on Abe from early childhood and really continued to sort of shape his views throughout his career. What are, if you can just tell us, who was Kishi and how did he shape Abe's outlook? Sure. I mean, that that really is the place to start when um, when thinking about Abe. So Kishi, growing up in Yamaguchi Prefecture, which previous, before the Meiji Restoration had been Choshu, the, the domain that really played a, a key role in the Meiji Restoration, uh, was really raised in uh, this, the shadow of these, these great nationalist heroes, you know, the builders of modern Japan. And 
went to Tokyo as a young man, uh, matriculated at Tokyo Imperial University, uh, excelled uh, on entrance exams for the bureaucracy, and ended up going to the Ministry of Commerce and Industry, the basically the nascent economic planning ministry in the ja- in the Japanese government uh, at that point in the Taisho period, and he becomes a really a, an absolute um, star in the ministry. Uh, is selected for the fast track, essentially, to, to, for the ministry's highest positions. Um, you know, really uh, goes to Europe several times to learn the art of industrial policy and economic planning, uh, particularly in Germany. And, I mean, is just a, a, a top-flight bureaucrat. And then in the mid-1930s, uh, somewhat to Kishi's chagrin, uh, goes to Manchuria, which you know, Japan was building its um, its puppet state of Manchuguo, um, is trying out some of these industrial policy techniques as a way to harness the resources of this of this continental colony. And so he basically um, really gets to um, to cut his teeth as an economic planner uh, with a lot more uh, just a lot more power and authority um, in uh, in Manchuria. Um, make some connections to among other people. Uh, Tojo Hideki, who becomes, uh, of course, the uh, the Prime Minister of Japan several years after this. Um, and so they both wind up back in Tokyo. Kishi ends up in Tojo's cabinet as the, the head of uh, the Ministry of Commerce and Industry, ends up as a major uh, military uh, logistics and, and armaments acquisition planner during the war. Um, and then after the war, winds up as a war criminal uh, in Sugamo prison, uh, you know, imprisoned by the U.S. occupation authorities. And it would seem at that point, you know, the Kishi story would be over then. Um, you know, many other, um, you know, members of wartime governments uh, ended up prison, imprisoned and purged. Uh, a number of them were executed. And um, Kishi, of course, was, was imprisoned alongside them. Um, but Kishi, uh, unlike uh, some others, including Tojo, uh, was saved by the Cold War. And as tensions grew between the United States and the Soviet Union, uh, the U.S. occupation did its uh, infamous reverse course and came to see someone like Kishi as an asset, someone who was going to make uh, Japan, uh, would be able to rebuild Japan industrially, would be able to make Japan a strong independent, non-communist ally of the United States. And so Kishi is released from prison, um, schemes to re-enter politics, reinvents himself as a, as a Democrat, quote-unquote, and um, ends up, um, after 1952, when the occupation ends, re-enters politics formally and becomes one of, first one of the founding fathers of the LDP, uh, being heavily involved in the negotiations that led to the party's creation in 1955. And then two years after that, uh, becomes prime minister. So really completing a, a truly remarkable um, comeback, you know, and, and again, I mean, maybe this, this is a running theme, but just sort of an unlikely comeback after uh, his career seemingly uh, was over. And what Kishi, Kishi really brought uh, to the premiership and to Japanese politics was a belief that the reforms introduced by the occupation and accepted by some Japanese conservatives, uh, most notably Yoshida Shigeru, uh, that Japan should be lightly armed, uh, firmly allied and, um, allied to the United States, have very little military power of its own, and basically accept a, a subordinate position um, in the U.S.-led uh, block of, of democracies or the free world or whatever term you want to use for it. Um, 
Kishi rejected that, that he wanted, you know, he rejected the, the post-war constitution. He rejected restrictions on Japan's military power. He, he wanted Japan uh, to basically pick up where it left off as a, as a strong, independent, great power. He did not necessarily reject alliance with the United States. And of course, his most notable achievement as prime minister uh, was an upgrade uh, and revision of the original U.S.-Japan security treaty that made it more equal than, than the original treaty had been. Um, so he definitely saw Japan as part of uh, the free world. But he wanted it on Japan's terms. He did not want to accept the subordinate position that Yoshida and his acolytes had been willing to accept. And he, to some extent, failed in this, in this uh, mission. You know, he was not able to revise the constitution. Um, Japan's military power was uh, constrained for the duration of the Cold War. And you know, essentially, the Yoshida school won out and really held um, the upper hand, at least for, for much of the Cold War, if not... Um, all of the Cold War, and and that so that really was part of Kishi's legacy. It was a legacy, really, of work that was unfinished. Mm. Do you think that Abe saw himself as trying to complete his grandfather's mm. project? Or was that sort of shaping him, Abe? That is as a as his as a prime minister. Well, I think as Abe when Abe enters politics in 1993, and I think he invented himself. And I think that's the important thing to stress. I mean, uh, oftentimes when, when you read about Abe and his relationship with Kishi and, and the role of his family and, and his political identity, um, he it, he created this identity for himself. He decided upon entering politics that this was the kind of politician he wanted to be. And it, I mean, it's worth noting that it really is a, a, a creation after entering politics. I mean, there, there were moments, and Abe recounts a number of these moments in his own memoirs, um, as a younger man, um, stand, you know, as a student standing up for uh, his grandfather, who people called a war criminal. Um, but it, there's not a sense that it had a lot of political content to it, you know, or that he had uh, deep political convictions at that point. I mean, there's more of a sense that, you know, he was just standing up for his family's honor. And it really is only after 1993 that you get a, you get a sense that he did a lot of reading um, and a lot of thinking about what his grandfather believed and, and turning um, sort of a, a childhood admiration for his grandfather into something uh, that had more of a political agenda behind it. And so what he does really from, from 1993 onwards is, is, filling out that the content of that. And really what it was, he did see um, his grandfather's work as laudable and worth pursuing, particularly after the Cold War, when a lot of the certainties of post-war Japanese politics were all of a sudden up in the air. LDP, of course, loses power for the first time in 1993. Uh, questions about what the U.S.-Japan alliance looks like with the, with the Soviet Union no more. Uh, you know, the, the bubble bursting meant the end of Japan's uh, much admired and feared economic model. So all of a sudden, all of this is up in the air. And into the breach, you have Abe and a number of other young, uh, what I call new conservatives, who want to do what Kishi wanted to do back in the 1950s. They saw the post-war regime um, as as uh, illegitimate and ultimately as, as bankrupt, as having really failed to deliver uh, what had, what it had delivered for a long time, and it was no longer delivering that for the Japanese people. And 
Um, so very much, I mean, it was a deliberate effort on the part of Abe to pick up, uh, to, to pick up the torch that his grandfather had left. Uh, and that meant revising the constitution. It meant uh, strengthening Japan's armed forces. Uh, it meant uh, really centralizing power so that politicians uh, could govern properly. And instead of having bureaucrats and uh, their corrupt allies in the LDP uh, governing, um, it really was a, a wholesale vision for a new Japan. One of the ways that Kishi most often makes his way into Japanese history textbooks is in conversation about the the 1960 protests over the um, the renewal of the U.S.-Japan Security Treaty, and you discuss that in your book as well. And I wonder if um, and uh, yeah, if we want to provide any background for the readers on that. Um, you could get into that. But um, you do talk later in the book about Abe's views on sort of um, mass politics. And I wonder if there's something that we can sort of see a parallel in the way Kishi handled the or or sort of um, resisted popular protest against the renewal of the treaty to maybe the, the way we see Abe's views on protests, say, after uh, 2011. That is that is a, a really great question, and you know among the uh, beliefs that Abe I think took from Kishi was a certain skepticism of democracy as as it evolved in um, in post war Japan, and. Um, which is not, you know, and I, want, and I want to be careful because I think sometimes his critics say that, you know, Abe has authoritarian tendencies or, uh, you know, an aspiring dictator. And, and, and I'm, that's, I'm not necessarily saying that. But what I am saying that, um, you know, post-war Japan did see a, um, well, one, it did see a role for protest repeatedly. I mean, and, and you know, of course, protest ebbed and flowed. Um, but in sort of the tolerance for protest, I, you know, there was uh, an appreciation that um, minorities should be protected. You know that you know a minority that was able to make its voice heard enough, you know, by protesting, um, should be taken. You know, its views should be taken into consideration, and that also included then um, also in parliamentary politics, where you did have this, um, you know, this kokutai system, this idea. Um, where yes, you had government opposition and on the surface they would clash and the opposition would use all sorts of tactics to try to interfere with votes and to prevent policy from being made. Um, but in practice, you would have a lot of you know closed door backroom discussions between representatives of the party, which would ensure that even though the LDP was the, the ruling party, uh, that opposition parties were considered and did have a stake in the process and were engaged and their views uh, were represented. Um, it was not a majoritarian system, even though, um, you know, sensibly, you know, Japan had a, a Westminster, um, you know, democratic parliamentary system in its constitution. Um, this was what um, the Australian political scientist Aurelia, Aurelia George Mulgan has called Japan's un-Westminster system. I mean, her work, her work on this is great. It's, it's really, um, it's shaped a lot of my thinking. And I mean, up to this day, she's continued to do some really fantastic work on how uh, Japan's democracy and, and uh, cabinet government function. Um, but this idea of consensual democracy, ensuring that all views are represented, um, taking time to make decisions, um, 
you know, I, I think, you know, Kishi, I think, was opposed to that and really agitated for more Westminster-style democracy during his career. And Abe very much picked up that belief. And, you know, Kishi also had this expressed belief, and he puts it in his memoirs, you know, that the role of a democratic leader isn't just to do what the crowd wants or what the mass wants, but to step, you know, to, to walk you know, several feet ahead of the, of the public, you know, indicating the direction that, that um policy needed to go and, and the government needed to go. And so there's just not a lot of interest either from Kishi or from Abe really in um, kind of your know, democracy is the give and take of different views and finding a compromise and coming to consensus, uh, you know, that it really was, um, if we have the votes, uh, we get to make policy and we get to say, you know, that, that um, a parliamentary majority is a, an instrument for governing. Um, you know, it's exactly what, um, and some of the writing about British democracy itself has said that the, the textbook Westminster democracy is an elective dictatorship. You know, that the you know the will of a majority, um, as expressed by voters and and in um, parliamentary numbers, should be all that counts. And uh, as prime minister over you know, over his second tenure, I mean, Abe did. Uh, try to move Japan in a more majoritarian Westminster direction. Um, wasn't perfectly, I mean, there were moments where, you know, where I think Abe um, wanted to at least uh, give the appearance of, of taking into consideration minority views. But when he wanted something done, he was willing to use his parliamentary majority to do it. That if he had the most votes, he would get what he wanted. And we saw this most notably in 2015, when uh, the year after his government reinterpreted the constitution to allow Japan to exercise its right of collective self-defense, in 2015, when they had to, to write that interpretation into law that would actually enable the self-defense forces to take on these new roles, uh, you 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 know, he was going to pass that through. And he did make some concessions by allowing the diet session to run for an extraordinary long time. Um, basically, a session that started in January ran, ended up running all the way through September. But when it came down to a vote, he was not going to concede. Um, you know, he was going to get what he wanted with his majority. Um, and, and really, um, the only concessions that he ended up making were the fact that he, you know, he was governing with a coalition partner uh, whose votes were necessary, and so that coalition partner Komeito was relatively, you know, or at least nominally pacifist. So he had to make some concessions to Komeito, uh, but you know, didn't matter how many people protested outside the Diet, he was going to get his laws passed. Mm-hmm. I would say uh, to the reader that. Uh, we're going to have to jump over. There's so much detail in every section of the book, and there, we're going to have to skip over some really interesting details about Abe's relationship with his father and with his extended family. And as a historian myself, I was thrilled to see the interesting analysis of Abe's views on the Meiji Restoration and even his connection to his family background in, in Choshu, as Tobias, as you mentioned, of course, uh, one of the leaders of the Meiji Restoration. But we'll have to skip ahead, I think, to uh, getting into the sort of early stages of Abe's political career, which uh, was very interesting. Of course, we hardly ever hear, heard about this in the coverage of his, his second administration. So it was interesting to kind of take a look at, back at, there, uh, at that earlier period. And one thing that stuck out to me, you talk about... Uh, a book, he seems to have written several books, but one of the books that he wrote in that period in, in the mid-1990s where he adapts this concept from Max Weber, the, uh, this uh, 
balance of the ethics of conviction and the ethics of responsibility. And that seemed to be a sort of motif that you traced through the rest of his political career. So I wonder if you could sort of explain how Abe understood that concept and how it figured into his political leadership. Great. Thanks, thanks for, for drawing that out, because it's definitely one of, of, of the things that I discovered uh, in the course of reading uh, and researching and, and preparing for writing this book. I mean, that essay um, from from this 1996 collection of essays by um, a, a few of these new conservatives, uh, I, mean, I, I thought was such a revealing look at how Abe saw himself as a politician. Because, of course, I think a lot of people look at Abe and they see, you know, he's a nationalist, he's a right winger, he's, you know, it's it's all about his ideology and and what he wants to achieve, and and you know, he is someone who um, self consciously thinks about isms and where he fits on ideological spectrums. And you know, I am a conservative, and my opponents are liberals, and this is what it means. I mean, you look at his his two thousand uh, two thousand six book, uh, Utsukushi Kunie, his you know his campaign book uh, when he first was seeking the premiership. You know, it opens by asking, you know, what is conservatism? What is liberalism? And it's this very um, conscious um, thinking about you know, uh, just political ideas. Uh, but I, I was so struck when I when I read the 1996 essay, uh, and he and he is talking about Weber, and he is you know that this was part of you know his as a first term lawmaker he had um, he actually enters politics uh, as an opposition lawmaker, so he didn't quite have as much to do, and was doing a lot of reading and thinking, you know, and of course was reading um, you know his his grandfather's books, and uh, um, so he talks about Weber, and he talks about how you know Weber, this is. The, the dichotomy that Weber has in politics as a vocation and that essentially, uh, you know, a, a politician has, you know, politics can't just be all of the heart, can't just be all the ideals. It also has to be of the head. And you, so you see that even though Abe has this reputation, reputation as this, um, you know, loose cannon ideologue and, you know, all ideological conviction, the, the fact is that early in his career, he's at least thinking about, okay, as a politician, how do I balance these convictions and these beliefs with the need to govern, you know, the need to, to be responsible to a public? And he, of course, he, in this essay, he actually praises his grandfather, Kishi, uh, as having, you know, as being... Uh, the the ideal vision of you know a Weberian politician who can balance the, those two convictions, um, and you know what I think we see over the arc of Abe's career is his struggles with this. Um, that there are periods where he does seem uh, more uh, inclined towards you know pursuing his ideological convictions, uh, but when he is in power, and and I would say even during his first tenure, where it seemed uh, like that his ideological convictions won out and he lost sight of um, the the ethic of responsibility, um, even during his first government, I think he was at least trying to find the balance uh, between those two ethics. And and really, I, I think actually had much more success during his second government. And it explains why he was able to survive as long as he did. That he he knew, he knew he could not just go headlong in pursuit of constitution revision. Um, he knew that uh, he had to at least um, have something to say about you know, policies to improve people's uh, well-being and, and their livelihoods and, and to really put um, economics first. Um, also, because there was the only way he was going to wield power was by putting economics first. And so there was, there was this constant pursuit of the right balance between that. And, you know, and I think as he, as he 
uh, matured as a politician and as he experienced um, you know, his, his 2007 resignation and then having to be in the political wilderness and really being written off, uh, you know, just revisiting this idea and really thinking about how to find, um, you know, really striving for that balance. And, and so it was just, it was just fascinating to see uh, that idea and, and that need uh, for balance so early in his career. It strikes me that just as you traced the continuity of that struggle or that effort to find balance between those two poles, that there's a remarkable consistency for Abe throughout his political career in terms of his objectives, his priorities. And maybe that's a way to transition to talking about um, his, his rise to power in the ranks of the LDP. As he was moving up, you know, during that period in the 1990s and the 2000s that you described, where he's serving under prime ministers like Mori Shintaro and then Koizumi Junichiro, you have a really interesting discussion of of that particular relationship. Uh, It seems like he's already fixating on a lot of the the issues that he'll continue to push for and and advocate for throughout the rest of his career. So, you know, what was he really focusing in on during that period in his political career? From early on, he's you know the Constitution is um, perhaps foremost in his thoughts, you know, and, and the willingness to agitate for constitutional change, which you know to this day Japan has not had yet. Um, you know, this was you know something that Kishi had wanted. It is something that uh, Abe was willing to push for, despite taboos in talking about it even um, during the earlier parts of his careers. And and one way, you know, if we look at the arc of his career, um, one of the things that has changed is is there's no longer a taboo about talking about constitutional revision. And the question is now uh, what form it should take, uh, where it fits on the rank of priorities. You know, is it worth you know spending time on this? Um, but it is you know the whatever taboos once existed about talking about it uh, no longer exist. And I think part of that was the agitation of, of young conservatives in the 90s, um, like Abe. Um, the issue, though, where he really uh, stood out and really made a name for himself, really from the late 90s onward, uh, was in the issue of abductees, you know, Japanese citizens who had been abducted by North Korea in the 1970s, and 1980s. And, you know, this was an issue that had lurked on the margins of Japanese politics for a long time. Uh, people had thought it was kind of a, you know, maybe a conspiracy theory, not anything to take seriously. Um, it had gotten no traction even within the LDP for a long time. And, you know, it really took, um, you know, interest from some of these young conservatives in the, you know, in the mid to late nineties, you know, for the issue to really make its way onto the Japanese government's agenda. Um, And, you know, for Abe, and I write about this in the book, I mean, for Abe really was an issue that drove home the points he wanted to make about post-war Japan. Um, You know, that post-war Japan had preferred, um, you know, that they were, they were prepared to make um, payoffs to North Korea that you know, there were there, was, there were plenty of advocates even for normalization with North Korea within the LDP, even as evidence mounted um, that the Japanese state had didn't, done nothing um, to stop North Korea North Korea from abducting uh, uh, Japanese, including you know uh, you know in at least uh, one or two cases um, you know gir- young girls, and um, you know it, it was it was you know at an emotional level. It, it really helped Abe press the case for, uh, you know, really to condemn the Japanese state for failing in its most basic duties, you know, to protect the, the lives um, 
of of its citizens, and and that was re- so that was really the tenor of of Abe's um, critique. You know, really the the point that Abe was making was that you know the post war regime had failed, and we needed to do something different. We needed to build a new Japan. Uh, we needed to build a state that would be strong. That would be capable of of fulfilling these basic duties uh, that a state owes to its citizens. I wonder. It's it's hard when you're dealing with such relatively recent history to think of it in in broader context. But of course, it comes to mind that you've already mentioned that when we're talking about the 1990s in Japan, you've got the, the end of the Cold War and a, a realignment that's going on there. You've got China really starting to come into its own. Um, economically after a series of reforms. And of course, Japan is going through this, you know, it's, it's right in the, the midst of the, the long recession, it seems, when, when Abe is really starting to come into power. So I wonder how you think that context shapes him as a, as a politician, as a political thinker? I mean, absolutely. And it's, it's you know, to some extent, the rise of um, Japan's new conservatives was was overdetermined. I mean, between the bursting of the bubble, um, trade friction with the United States in the early to mid nineties, uh, uh, you have, you know, nuclear crisis with North Korea that, you know, and, and actually culminates with, um, you know, what some people have called the Sputnik moment for Japan in 1998, when North Korea fires, um, a tapo dong missile over North Korea, uh, over Japan. Um, you know, China, China's rise, of course, in the background, although it's not quite, um, the discourse about it is not quite the the same as as it is today. Um, you know, in 1995, you know, you have you know the the Hanshin earthquake, the Omshin Rikyo sub, Tokyo subway attack. You know, you just have a series of incidents um, that basically helped make the new conservatives argument for them that um, the system really. Uh, was was failing the Jap- the Japanese political system the Japanese state was failing to do uh, basically the most basic duties that the public expected it to fulfill. Um, we can also add to this political corruption scandals, bureaucratic corruption scandals. I mean, you know, really this mood this mood of um, you know of malaise and and a sense that Japan really um, um, was in irreversible decline and and really needed uh, a dramatic change of direction and. Um, you know, so really, it is into this breach um, that the new conservatives step in, and Abe, in some ways, is really perfectly suited. Uh, he's, he's sort of the man for the moment, um, and and it it really makes sense in some ways that he winds up as prime minister in two thousand six, only thirteen years after he is elected to the Diet for the first time. You know, of course, he has this very distinguished pedigree um, as Kishi's grandson. We haven't really talked about his father, Abe Shintaro, but he, you know, um, Abe. Uh, Shintaro had been, um, you know, an LDP prince, um, had been uh, basically in line um, to uh, become prime minister sooner or later, but uh, died of cancer prematurely in 1991. Um, so Abe, of course, I, you know, I think a lot of um, Shintaro's uh, comrades uh, felt protective of Abe once he entered politics, you know, and 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 wanted to help him along, and and you know, of course, you know, just sort of the the tragedy of Shintaro dying before his time, um, you know. So Abe is sort of perfectly suited, you know, to be the leader of this new movement within the LDP, um, you know, because of this pedigree and because he was really being helped along, um, you know, really being promoted to ever higher positions. Um, probably before he was ready. And, and I think one of the things um, that Abe 
realized after his resignation in 2007, and as he reflected on that time, you know, was that um, he kind of he allowed himself to kind of get swept along, um, and didn't necessarily make uh, decisions that were best for him and for his development as a politician, but instead sort of followed. Um, you know, sort of, you know, tried to live up to the expectations and, and, and the hopes that everyone had for him as, um, you know, as a, as a future leader um, of Japan. It was so interesting to read about the period after his first premiership ended and he was sort of uh, in the wild. I never in a million years would have imagined Abe uh, hiking. <laughs> uh, and it sounded like hiking actually played an important part in his sort of, um, I don't know, getting his mojo back somehow or building his connections with the people who would then go on to be important in the next stage of his career. Yeah, I mean, there was sort of like a little like hiking club, um, <laughs> you know, and, and, you know, a number of them t- tell the story in various ways of him um, uh, going out to um, to Kaosan in you know, Western Tokyo and um, which, you know, if you've done it is... Um, you know, it's not, it's not, you know, it's a day trip, uh, but it's, uh, it's, 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 it's not without its, without its challenges uh, for, uh, for, for an afternoon's hike. <laughs> um, you know, and, and so you know, talks, you know, he's, he has talked about that as a turning point, um, you know, and, and, you know, both his physical recovery and also while he was out and about that, you know, there were voters, you know, just the ordinary people out who wished him well. And, you know, just, um, giving him a sense that he could, that he could remain in politics and that he still had work to do. Um, you know, and, you know, cause there was some question, even if he was going to stay in the diet, his wife, um, after watching what he went through in 2007, um, was, uh, pushing for him to retire and, and to leave politics entirely. Um, but it's, you know, it's also, you know, now that we see, you know, from the perspective of 2020 and, and after his second premiership, you know, just seeing, you know, that he, he, um, you know, he's so, he's just such a political animal, you know, that, that, you know, Abe, uh, you know, Matt, you know, it's almost impossible to imagine him, you know, what he could do, um, if not in politics, that he, um, he just, um, carries, um, you know, that this is just who he is. I mean, Abe is such a political animal that it's, it's hard to imagine what sort of life he would have if he were not in politics. And I guess that has some bearing on what he does now, uh, that he's left the premiership. Um, I mean, clearly uh, he's going to have some role to play. He's not going to leave the diet, um, you know, as, unless his health made it impossible to carry on, but he's going to, you know, he's going to be involved. He's going to uh, have his say on what the LDP is doing and what his successors are doing in the premiership. And, you know, I think that was really uh, something we learned from his wilderness years. As I've said a few times now, we're having to skip over, large sections of your book, which are so detailed. And I'll just, again, recommend the reader. This is the, this is the book you want to read if you want to know about each of the steps that Abe takes in his really remarkable political career. But I think we should probably get to his, uh, the period for which he's best known, his, his long, the longest uh, premiership from 2012 to just recently <laughs> in 2020. And one thing I wanted to maybe just Again, there's so much to talk about in this period as well, uh, and we probably won't even scratch the surface. But one phrase that I noticed uh, came up several times in your discussion of that part of his career was, or maybe a few phrases, um, that he was a pragmatic, a risk taker, and a practicer of statecraft. 
And I was wondering if you could talk about how that sort of pragmatism, that blend of pragmatism and a willingness to take risks is something that you see in his approach to leadership in some of the main policy areas he focused on. Sure. Well, the, the pragmatism goes back to what we talked about with Weber and you know, the, the finding this balance between uh, the ethic of, of responsibility and the ethic of conviction. Um, and, you know, so it's not pragmatism as an end in itself. It is not that, you know, um, you know, Japan has had prime ministers who, you know, had very, very limited um, ideological convictions and were willing, you know, which meant they were willing to borrow um, from all corners. Um, you know, Abe was not that. Um, you know, he he was a, a pragmatist in pursuit of a you know a strong conviction, which was that the Japanese state uh, needed to be strong enough to deliver prosperity and security for the Japanese people, and and that really was his lodestar, and and really what he found it you know what he followed um, as he governed, and it explained you know really the the focus on. Um, economic policy and what became known as Abenomics from early on that uh, you you know that Japan really uh, needed a new approach um, to economic stagnation you know to, to try to uh, reflate the economy to, to get uh, to banish deflation uh, to get people spending and investing um, to increase employment uh, increase wages I mean all of that um, was just a, a you know, part of this conviction that you know you needed um, you know Japan needed to be wealthy if it were to be strong. And the role, you know, that there really was a, 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 an essential role for the state in making that possible. Um, and so that's, I mean, that's really why, why, you know, where we should think of pragmatism. And I mean, statecraft is part of that. I mean, and you know, ultimately it's with an eye towards um, Japan's place in a, uh, you know, uncertain Fast changing and in many cases threatening uh, regional environment. I mean, you know, we t- you know, touched on on China's rise briefly before, um, but of course, you know, uh, the past decade has really seen um, China become a challenge to Japan and its other neighbors in ways that it had not been before. And you know, making sure that Japan had the capabilities um, to you know to survive and and to well more than, you know, survive on its own terms, survive, um, you know, as a prosperous country, politically independent country, um, secure in its democracy, um, you know, that, that really is, is the goal, um, you know, for Abe and, and his ideological allies, you know, and, and ensuring that the state is able to realize that. And that really was what guided uh, his thinking throughout his tenure. Um, in terms of risk-taking, uh, what, what I think, you know, he, he was a, a, um, Cautious risk taker was not mean. You know, he he was not someone who uh, was interested in. Um, you know, he was not going to put all of his chips on one uh, one battle, one outcome. You know, with entrenched interest, um, and you know, it's something that sets him apart from uh, Koizumi Junichiro, his his one time mentor, who you know wanted to fight big political fights. Um, you know, wanted to take on special interests, and you know, it'd be winner take all. Um, Abe was a different, uh, you know, sought different types of confrontations. Um, he wanted to know that the odds were in his favor and, um, you know, was willing to settle for less than total victory. If it did mean victory in the end, uh, he was, I, I think there were plenty of times where in, in the pursuit of reform, he was willing to make tactical concessions, um, in the interest of getting 
uh, a larger, um, um, you know, gets the, getting a larger goal and, and moving moving some policy area forward. I mean, that was really uh, his approach, and so um, he was definitely willing to run risks. I mean, he he ran the risk, um, you know, bringing Japan into the Trans Pacific Partnership in 2013, for example. Even though he was elected as the head of a, of a parliamentary majority. Um, many of whose members were opposed to TPP and had campaigned uh, in opposition to TPP. Uh, we talked about the 2015 national security laws. Um, he uh, basically you know, really uh, did everything he could to limit the risk to his government from you know, pushing ahead with those laws, even though he was determined to get them done. Um, you know, offered a number of concessions to critics uh, within the LDP, to his coalition partner, Komaito, um, you know, of course, concessions to the opposition by allowing the debate to run much longer than I think Abe would have preferred. Uh, so there, there were all sorts of um, ways to cushion, um, you know, to the, the impact of, of potentially controversial decisions. Um, yeah, another nuclear policy. I mean, he wanted he comes into pow- to power wanting to restart nuclear reactors that had been shuttered after the three eleven triple disasters. Uh, but when it was clear that opposition to nuclear power was not softening, um, and that local uh, opposition in communities that that host nuclear power um, power plants that that wasn't softening, that he was prepared to kind of let the process uh, take its course, that he wasn't going to force things. He was not going to, um, you know, he's not going to invest a lot of political capital given how intense the opposition was. And so it was really a drawn out process that was out of his hands. Um, that was, that was, I think, uh, really characterizes his approach to some of these more controversial issues. Of course, Abe has drawn a lot of attention in Japan, I think to an extent, but certainly outside of Japan as well, for a certain what we might call a historical revisionist approach to Japan, Japan's wartime aggression, particularly the the topic of the comfort women, which is a topic you discuss at length in the book, and also the controversial decision to visit Yasukuni Shrine on several occasions. And I think for a lot of observers, especially from outside Japan, those are some of the things that loom largest in terms of the impression of Abe. And yet, in your book, as you discuss foreign relations under Abe, you point that you point out toward the end that really he deserves a lot of credit for preserving and in some ways revising Japan's relationship with the United States, stabilizing relations with China as much as that's possible in the present circumstances, and building strategic partnerships with Australia, India, ASEAN nations, and so on. So I wonder what you think about how he was able to thread that needle where on one hand, he seemed to be, I don't know if it was pandering to a base, but it also seemed to really come from deeply felt conviction, some of these issues about the war and the comfort women and so on. Um, And at the same time, his ability to move Japan forward with its foreign relations. Thanks. That's a, I mean, of course, it's, it's a question I think that, that, um, it's probably top of mind for most people when they think about Abe. And it, I mean, it really is where his pragmatic pursuit of a strong state uh, won out over some of his ideological convictions. I mean, clearly, this is, these, are, these are things that are, um, you know, his ideas about um, what Japan did during the war and how, um, how 
young Japanese should be taught about their country's history and, and, and the wartime past. I mean, those are deeply held convictions. You know, as a young politician, you know, education was one of his priorities. I mean, he clearly thinks um, that Imperial Japan did a lot of good. Um, you know, and and you know the kind of arguments that were made at the time about uh, Japan uh, freeing uh, Asian colonies from Western empires and and the like, um, and you know, and, and downplaying some of the uh, the more you know, notorious and and really cruel uh, acts, you know, including including the comfort women. Um, but what we saw really post twenty thirteen. Um, and 2013 was, I mean, we can, we can bracket that because it was really uh, a year marked by a lot of tension with the Obama administration over um, historical issues, you know, and, and um, the Obama administration saw uh, Abe when he came back and were concerned that he was going to complicate uh, the administration's efforts to uh, basically strengthen, t- you know, its, its ties uh, with its allies in Asia and you know, foster better relations between South Korea and Japan, and it would be a propaganda gift for China. And so the Obama administration was not happy with Abe. And Abe um, basically refused to be told what to do about history issues. And over the course of 2013, did a number of things, culminating in a visit to Yasukuni in December, um, that basically said, I'm going to be my own man, and I'm, I'm not going to uh, back away from these issues just because you tell me to. Uh, but what happened after that is really what's fascinating, is that um, the you know that Obama and Abe that I mean they didn't have um, the warmest of personal relationships, but both leaders and and their administrations really seemed to find a way to talk about historical issues and, and you know historical memory uh, questions uh, with basically an agreement uh, an unwritten agreement uh, that that they wouldn't point fingers that wouldn't be about blame and you know who is at fault for what. Um, but they wouldn't. They would also. They would talk about it. You know, they would address um, some of the sensitive issues on history, and um, so you did get um, really a series of. Um, you know, I mean, it's all symbolic gestures, of course. I mean, um, but you know, Abe gives a speech. Um, you know, trying to express his his remorse for what Japan uh, did to Australian prisoners of war, for example. He goes to Canberra, gives a speech to the Australian Parliament. In 2015, gives a speech before a joint session of Congress. Uh, similar sorts of sentiments. Um, we uh, we also see in 2015... Um, the there's a statement he issues on, on the 70th anniversary of the end of the war, and there was a lot of concern before that that statement, um, you know, that Abe would really uh, break with past apologies from Japanese leaders, and by and large he didn't. And um, the Abe statement, in some ways, is memorable mostly for how anodyne it was, and um, that you know a lot of the fears about it did not pan out. And also at the end of 2015, you got a. Um, an informal agreement uh, with South Korea in which Abe went a lot further than I think a lot of people expected when it came to being willing to offer an apology uh, to South Korean comfort women. Um, and, you know, and so all of that, I, you know, I think you know, reflected Abe's recognition um, that, you know, a strong Japan, uh, you know, you know, allied to the United States, you know, with, with close ties to the United States and, and ensuring the U S was committed to Japan and Japan security. Um, 
and that Japan needed to find a way to get along with South Korea, um, you know, that, that, that those considerations went out over, you know, these long held ideological convictions. Um, and, I, you know, and Abe has said that I think, you know, one of the things he wanted to, to leave behind was a legacy that, you know, he would be the last prime minister to have to apologize for what happened during the war. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's going to actually <laughs> end up bearing out. Probably not. Um, um, but uh, you know that was, I think, uh, you know, something he really tried to achieve, and and part of it also was Obama going to Hiroshima and Obama, and Abe going to Pearl Harbor at the very end of the Obama administration, and so really it was actually quite a, a remarkable turn considering um, how bad things looked in December 2013 when when Abe went to Yasukuni. Uh, the years since have been um, less uh, less favorable, um, particularly once you had. A, a change of administration um, in South Korea in 2017, you know, to a more progressive administration. Uh, and one of the first things that, that President Moon of South Korea did, uh, you know, was saying he was going to look at that that 2015 agreement, um, and basically then systematically uh, dismantled it. And you've also now seen uh, these court cases about. Um, uh, restitution for uh, forced laborers who were employed by Japanese companies uh, during the colonial period, and and that's led to a, a downward spiral in relations uh, between Japan and South Korea. Uh, yeah, we can talk about and and you know who's to blame for that. I mean, um, you know, I, I I think there is blame to go around on both sides. Um, but you know, Abe certainly showed uh, at one point during his tenure a willingness to put closer relations with South Korea ahead of uh, pressing uh, Japan's interpretation of its history with South Korea, and and so you know that, that he deserves at least some credit for for being willing to do that um, and willing being willing to at least um, you know just uh, you know, just set aside those ideological convictions in the name of uh, higher, you know, just higher priorities. That seems to be more evidence of that theme of the the Weberian concept, those the ethics of conviction and the ethics of responsibility. And yeah, it's, it's interesting because that's certainly not the the general impression we get of, of Abe in in the let's just say in the mass media most of the time. Um, in the interest of time, we should probably move on a little bit. Um, there's so much in the book about Abe's handling of the complex relationship with China, with Xi Jinping in recent years. And of course, you mentioned his relationship with President Obama, which was complex to say the least. And of course, uh, toward the end of the book, we get into the Trump years. Uh, I have a feeling that if we started talking about that, this podcast might be twice as long. <laughs> um, so in the interest of uh, trying to wrap things up here, I'll just say that as a, um, as a historian who, who follows uh, politics, but uh, not uh, professionally, I'll, I'll say that by the end of this book, I came away with generally a, a more favorable impression of Abe's overall performance than I had when I started reading the book. You persuaded me that he actually achieved a lot, whether we look at the the economic impact of the Abenomics program, his foreign policy achievements, his efforts to address the demographic challenges that Japan's facing, um, some of the progress that has been made toward uh, improving women's opportunities to engage in the workplace and, and so on. There's quite a, a list of accomplishments. But at the end of the, the book, you strike a sort of somber note. And it was actually something that had been on, on my mind as I was reading the book that really throughout his career, we don't see much of a, an emphasis on climate change. And you make the point toward the end of the book that it's, it's possible that in spite of all the accomplishments of his 
his long second premiership that it, it's possible that um, you know the the current crisis that we're facing with climate change could ultimately undermine a lot of that progress. And then, of course, just at the end of the book, the you know COVID nineteen and the pandemic comes into it as well. So I wonder if you um, could talk a little bit about how you see the potential, the you know the ongoing impact of climate change affecting Abe's legacy. And if you want to bring anything about the pandemic as well, that would be great. Yeah, I mean, I, I think what climate change really points to is the, you know, the extent to which uh, um, Abe's legacy is missed opportunities. And and by which I mean that, you know, he, you hear you have um, Japan's longest serving prime minister um, politically unchallenged in ways that, that even previous long serving prime ministers um, hadn't been. I mean, Koizumi, you know, lasted for uh, five and a half years, but throughout that entire time, you know, he was he was fending off um, what he called the the resistant forces in the LDP. Um, you know that that it was constant fighting, and you had at that point also an, an um, you know a a Democratic Party of Japan that was growing in strength. Abe didn't have any of those factors, and the LDP was. Um, was tamed, probably the the most passive it's been throughout its its long history. Um, the opposition was pretty much a non factor in Japanese politics. Um, you know, after after the Democratic Party of Japan's um, missteps when it was in power from two thousand nine to twenty twelve. So I mean, Abe had probably more opportunities to to impose his will, so to speak, um, than any prime minister has had, and and maybe the, than any prime minister will ever have. I mean, it's you know that that um, he really enjoyed um a lot of you know a lot of luck you know a lot of circumstances that just lined up um lined up for him and enabled him to last as long as he did um with as much at least potential political power as he did um but uh, you know over time you know i i think this the the political stability that he realized um over time became an end in itself which made him reluctant i think to be to take risks on um some of these more challenging issues and, and i really I, I it was hard to figure out where to address climate change but i knew i had to say something about it because you know anyone looking back um i mean just given the trajectory that the world appears to be heading um you know, and Japan is already, you know, the last several years, the, the heat waves it's faced and the flooding it has faced. I mean, Japan is not going to be immune from the effects of, of climate change. It's just not. And, it, you know, one of my aims in writing this book, as, as I said earlier on, is, you know, was really trying to think about, okay, well, how, when we, when we look at back at Abe in five, 10 or 15 years, um, what what's what are people going to remember him for? And you know, I, I can't help but think that given the trajectory that the you know that that we appear to be on for climate change, I mean, I I think people are going to look back and are going to wonder, you know, you know, here you had Japan um, with a with a strong, stable government for you know the longest ever period of time like that, um, and certainly uh, even Japan looks even better when put you know looking looking Japan compared to some of its uh, pure democracies uh, in the G seven. I mean, you really. Um, you know, Japan really was capable of leading uh, on this issue in ways that that most other countries were not, and and Japan never really lived up to it. I mean, there were points in time where Abe said the right thing, um, and and you know indicated an interest in pursuing the issue, but was never really willing to to spend political capital on it. Uh, this was not something that he invested uh, his time and his attention on, uh, really, when it would have mattered. I mean, the the the, the big counterfactual for me 
is back in 2015, Abe basically rolls out Aveonomics 2.0 and, and it indicated a shift um, from some of the, the, the initial concerns uh, on deflation, most notably, um, you know, to a new focus on demographics and, and you know, acknowledging that the demographic challenges were, were the most important challenge facing Japan. I'm not going to argue with that. I mean, that is definitely true. Um, and, and it's something that, that has to be addressed. But if Abe had used that moment in 2015, you know, right at the moment that the Paris Climate Accords were being completed, um, to say the, you know, the, the core focus of Abenomics 2.0 are going to be uh, you know, moving towards a zero-carbon Japan on an aggressive timetable and demographics, um, you know, it, you know, had Japan been the one, you know, that really made a Green New Deal um, a concept worth pursuing and, and modeling that, um, I mean, you know, of course, Japan isn't going to solve climate change on its own, but, um, you know, it's still, look, Japan is still a big emitter, especially now that it's not running its nuclear power plants. It's still importing and burning a lot of fossil fuels. I mean, just it just would have made such a difference. Um, you know, to have Japan assume that role and to really set the example at home. And instead, Japan is building coal plants and exporting coal coal plant technology. Um, and and, and it's, you know, and it really is just a missed opportunity that Japan could have been a very different uh, type of, of leader on this issue. And Abe could have been a type of leader on this issue. And, and he just um, failed. And, uh, you know, a similar sense of failure and, and, and missed opportunities, um, I, I think, um, shapes his uh, record on COVID nineteen. I mean, which really ultimately ultimately contributed to his resignation, and which is funny because in terms of Japan's performance, um, both in terms of the number of uh, of people who have died from the disease, um, and and just Japan's ability to respond um, quite flexibly and, and capably when clusters have emerged, um, Abe did not get a lot of credit for that. Um, you know, and, and you look at the polls, you know, particularly when um, Japan, I don't know, it's hard to, to know how exactly to count waves, but, you know, as cases really started spiking uh, in April and May, um, you know, he really looked uh, out to sea. Like he really, you know, his, it took a long time to make decisions on how to respond. Um, it sort of went back and forth. Um, he had to reverse himself several times. And I think the public responded to that, you know, that, that really that his government really did not look like it had um, a, a good grasp of the issue you know, of the pandemic and, and how to respond both um, in terms of public health and in terms of economics, you know, whether, whether that was fair or not. Um, I mean, and, and it's funny, you know, that Abe is someone who throughout his career has, I think, really stressed the importance of, po- of political rhetoric and, you know, th- you know, someone who knows the power of political speech and writing and, and speaking. And really, there wasn't really much more that was expected of him during this. I mean, you know, rely on the experts, let the experts you know, guide Japan's response and communicate what, what the government was doing clearly to the public. And Abe did not really seemed to do that. They really struggled to explain um, his government's priorities and, and how it was um, tackling uh, the, the health and the economic challenges. And he really paid the price for that. And, you know, as his approval ratings falls, you know, fell, I think, I think that's when we saw uh, his health, his, his own health get worse, leading to his resignation. Well, I really appreciated the way you brought in that extra sort of balance toward the end. And I think that the reader will find that you give uh, a, a truly balanced overview of this very complex politician who's had uh, an incredible impact on Japan in the last several decades. So, of course, here at the 
uh, New Books Network, we highly recommend this book and encourage readers to go out and, and snatch it up. I wonder, just as we wrap up here, if you could tell us what was it like to have Abe announce his sudden resignation just as your book was hitting the shelves? <laughs> um, exhausting. I mean, I mean, Abe's resignation was going to be a big deal, even if I didn't have a book to promote. But it did mean that, you know, what I had thought was going to be um, a leisurely book, you know, virtual book tour from my basement, um, you know, over the over the span of months um, and and into 2020. Um, ended up being compressed into about three or four weeks. I mean, it's, I'm staying, I'm still doing things now. And it also meant actually the release got moved up. So, um, well, so, so the, the worldwide and my public, my publisher, Hearst Publishers is UK based. And so the, the worldwide, um, UK publishing publication date, um, was at the end of August. So the day before Abe's Abe resigned. And originally, um, my North American distributor, Oxford university press, uh, November 1st was going to be the release date in North America. And now that date actually was moved up to October 1st. So it is now available um, in the U S and it also meant actually that the ebook distribution was supposed to, was supposed to begin in October and that was moved up to September 4th. And so, um, you know, that everything got moved up. I mean, for good reason. I mean, I'm, I'm glad that people were able to, to read, you know, really a, a, an attempt to make sense of Abe's legacy at the moment when people really were thinking about, okay, what's Abe's legacy? But it did mean um, for a few weeks there, it was, uh, it was a very intense period of talking about Abe uh, at great length. <laughs> well, you were probably one of the most well-positioned people to answer the questions that a lot of people had uh, when that news broke. So I hope it let, will uh, inspire people to go out and pick up a copy of The Iconoclast. It really is a, a great read. And uh, I'd just like to thank you, Tobias, for taking the time to discuss this important new biography of an, an extremely important political figure in uh, contemporary Japan. And I highly encourage our listeners to go up and pick a copy for themselves. I agree. And thank you again for having me on, Steve. It really is a pleasure and, and really enjoyed talking. Uh, you really drew out the main theme. So thank you. Oh, well, thanks a lot. Uh, and thank you listeners for uh, checking out this episode of uh, New Books in East Asian Studies. I've been your host, Steve Wills, and uh, I'll just encourage you to keep an eye out for new episodes coming soon, wherever you get your podcasts. 